Hello and welcome to the Trap One podcast. This is a field report, uh, but for once without our excellent roving reporter Pete. But no, please don't turn off because I am here with <laughs> US Jason, don't my, turn off. <laughs> my long-term podcasting partner, recording together in person for the first time ever. We are coming to you live from LobbyCon at the LAX Marriott. It is the Friday afternoon of the convention. We've already been to our first panel. And last night we did the opening kickoff ceremony and Gallifrey One's infamous LobbyCon, which often goes until 2 in the morning. Mark and I were both jet-lagged, so we booked out about 10.30 in the height of the festivities. Yeah, I went to bed having been up for about 26 hours at that point, so I was pleased to, to make it after 10 p.m. To, to try and get into the, the local time. But yeah, really good to soak up the atmosphere last night. So Kevin McNally, Jay Griffiths wandering around, everything like that. Fraser that Hines. Cool. Fraser Hines was here, Paul Cornell. And then everything started uh, in earnest today. So the uh, the dealer's room is open. Um, obviously, we, we, drugs are bad. We don't endorse that. It's not that kind of dealer. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's Doctor Who merchandise. Uh, so we both managed to plug some gaps in our collection. I have completed my Target book collection after about 35 years by purchasing today Mind Warp, The Rescue, and The Wheel in Space. All at pretty reasonable prices. Definitely cheaper than I would have been able to get them in the United Kingdom. But, you know, especially you know once you try to pay sort of postage and things like that on eBay or from anybody, they're all in absolutely beautiful conditions. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty happy now that that's that's ticked off. Still need to finish all my other book collections, but um, I've, I've finished Target. And you you managed to replace some of your lost media. So I had at one point every new adventure, every missing adventure. Most of the past Doctor Adventures and all of the Eighth Doctor Adventures. I was storing all that stuff because I live in a two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. I didn't have room for all the books. I had a lot stored in my mother-in-law's garage in the suburbs. When she downsized and moved from her house to a condo across town, she cleaned out her garage overzealously. And of the 11 boxes that I had stored in her garage, seven of them were given to Got Junk, and the rest were kept for me. And as luck would have it, all the important stuff, all the sentimental stuff, all those new adventures, which are the most important books for me, all gone. So I've been rebuilding all 61 new adventures, thanks to friends and eBay. And I was able to get three of the rarest ones downstairs in the dealer's room at very good prices compared to what they go for on eBay and in excellent condition. So I spent a little more money this morning than I would have been planning on, but getting those books at the prices they were being sold at would have been irresponsible to not buy them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really impressed about how reasonable it is um, here. I, I kind of I thought with a, with a captive audience of Doctor Who fans, and often to a place like Comic Con and places like that in the UK, you go pay sometimes a little bit more at conventions. But I'm, uh, yeah, I'm really, really happy with uh, with my purchases. That's um, yeah, it's really cool. And the dealer's room is massive as well. The, and Cutaway Comics is there. Big Finish is there. There's uh, your kind of fan-made stuff. There's obviously the the figures. Doctor Who apparently I didn't know this fairly recently. It's got the after Star Wars. It's, so it's the second biggest toy yeah, action figure range. Oh, uh, I was not aware of that. Yeah, so I think this was on an interview with Al Dewar, who, who does character options stuff. So, uh, so yeah, so obviously there's there's years and years in that, and there's, there's loads of that to buy as well. And we've been to our first panel, which was a brilliant panel to start with. It was fascinating and entertaining. 
It was by Simon Guerrier. Who is phenomenal at this sort of thing. So he has written Doctor Who novels, some of which my mother-in-law threw out. <laughs> He's written Big Finish. He wrote the magisterial biography of David Whitaker that just came out, which went into incredible detail. I have it here in my bag, and I'm interviewing Simon tomorrow, knock on wood, for Doctor Who literature. But what was today's panel about? Because last year he did his David Whitaker panel, showing clips from David Whitaker's life, video footage of things David Whitaker was at, including his wedding. But today... Yeah, so this this was about uh, putting Doctor Who into context of of TV leading up to Doctor Who. So everything from basically the the advent of TV in the UK to to Doctor Who and and the through line of how technology shaped it, how audience research shaped it, how bringing in the uh, Sidney Newman uh, and and people like that and David Whittaker, how they all shaped it, what they learned from things like Pathfinds in Space and we got a little clip from Pathfinds in Space. And it was terrible. It was awful. And, and another show which I hadn't heard of, and I've already forgotten the name of. But it was, uh, uh, Gary Halliday? Gary Halliday, yeah, which uh, there's a, we, we saw the, the, the surviving, the clip of the one surviving episode. It was about the adventures of these pilots. And the first five minutes of the episode were a narrator describing every single character and who they were <laughs> and what their relationship was to the other characters and where they were in the story and, and how Doctor Who learned from that and how, you know, how lean and unearthly child is really in in bringing those people in and uh, you know bringing the characters in very quickly and he was yeah really he was, he's, he's, he's immersed in this stuff and he's really fascinating to listen to about about how, how it was all shaped and yeah it was just a fantastic fantastic panel the biggest takeaway from that is that the people who made Doctor Who have DNA that goes back to the earliest days of television so when the BBC started creating original dramas for themselves, they hired staff writers. Their very first staff writer was Nigel Neal, mm-hmm. who did Quatermass, which is a big influence on Doctor Who. Their second staff writer, which I was today years old when I learned this, last name Mackey, is the grandfather of Pearl Mackey, a.k.a. Bill Potts. Yeah. Simon showed a still photo from the very first dramatic production ever aired on the BBC. In November 1936, the BBC, the BBC's first day, their first dramatic, it was a 10-minute adaptation of a stage play, and it was one camera, it was two cameras, couldn't move, no close-ups, no pans. Yeah, no, no backdrop, no scenery, and the actors couldn't move. And the actors had to wear makeup in order to be visible on yeah. camera, crazy red and purple and green makeup, <laughs> and they had props, but no, no, no sets. One of those four actors, the very first dramatic actors ever on the BBC, John Bailey, who ended up in three Doctor Who episodes, The Censorites, Evil of the Daleks, and what's the third one? He showed a photo of it. No, I don't know it. The Horns of Nine. The Horns of Nine. <laughs> so you have an actor in Color <laughs> Doctor Who in 1980 who was one of the very first actors ever portrayed on the BBC 44 years earlier. And he was showing stills from Compact, the soap opera, <laughs> which is very influential on Doctor Who because I think Warris Hussein directed it. I think David Whitaker script edited it. The font on the closing credits for Compact are the same as the Doctor Who font. Mm. Director Christopher Barry, yeah. who later directed Doctor Who. Producer Alan Bromley, who later directed Doctor Who. Everybody who made television in the UK ended up on Doctor Who later. So the through line between John Logie Baird and Doctor Who in 2023 is a direct line. 
and then and he tied it all together with that, wasn't he? Obviously, John, John Logie Baird was in one of the recent 60th anniversary specials, and just about how Doctor Who has always been about technology and how technology can help with progress, and, and Doctor Who being at the forefront of uh, progressive change. So it was, yeah, it was a fantastic panel to start. Uh, to start with uh, the next panel that we're going to uh, hopefully it can live up to that that's uh, that's at one o'clock what's that panel about it's about Doctor Who podcasting oh wow they must have some really uh, good names on there let's see um, oh Deb Stanish from Verity amazing person she's a friend uh, Chip from Two Minute Time Lord that's awesome and who's, who's one of the other people on the panel? I don't know. I don't it's, recognize the other names. It's Jason Miller. I don't know. That could be Ah, anybody. he's a loser. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Forget it. Not going to that panel. <laughs> All right, so, Mark, we have a packed weekend. We are going to a guest reception tomorrow night with the Billy Piper. Yes. And Segan Akinola. Camille Kaduri. Camille Kaduri. And um, Steve Cole, who does a lot of the books. Mm-hmm. I am going to script readings on Sunday with Derek Jacobi and Matthew Waterhouse. I've already recorded one. I've recorded one of three Doctor Who lit interviews. I, have, I recorded with you last night for an upcoming book, and I've got two more coming up today and tomorrow. Many more panels to get to. We are going to have a very very busy weekend, and we're going to share it with you. We will catch up soon. Okay, so it's Saturday afternoon. Uh, it's been another really full day at, at Gallifrey One. Uh, obviously, we first recorded yesterday morning before we'd done very much. We'd only been to Sam Guerrier's panel, hadn't we, I think? And that was a phenomenal morning. panel. Yeah, that's, that's actually been, been one of the highlights for me. It was excellent. And then we uh, spoke to him this morning because you recorded an interview with him for... Doctor Literature, and we had a nice little conversation with him afterwards. And you sat really in, nice you asked him a good question. Re- yeah, that was really interesting. Obviously, I don't want to spoil anything for Doctor Literature, but yeah, it revealed something about the, the nature of, of books now that the Hooniverse is in is in place, which was, which yeah, it was really interesting. And he gave a very long answer to your question. He spoke with us for almost an hour and a half, which was phenomenally generous of him. Yeah, a really, really, really nice guy, really passionate about his subject, really knowledgeable. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was really cool. And then it was nice as well after we were recording. He's been to the Museum of Classic Sci-Fi, which is near where I live, which I'm uh, really keen to uh, tell everybody about and promote and everything as well. So yeah, I t- tell people about it every opportunity. So it's cool that he'd been there and, and enjoyed that as well. So the highlight for me yesterday, Friday, was I was on three different panels, which is the most panels that I've ever been on in a gala. Usually one or two is how much I'm given. This year I had three. So at 1 o'clock, I was on a podcasting how-to panel with Deb Stanish from the Verity Podcast and Chip from Two Minute Time Lord. And compared to these two long-running Doctor Who podcasters with hundreds and hundreds of episodes and probably 25 years combined of podcasting experience, I had comparatively little to say. And then Erin Amos, with whom I'm not very familiar, but she has also... Uh, more wide-ranging sci-fi podcast covering a lot of social issues. I do a books, books podcast, so compared to them, I had very little to say. It was a really interesting panel, I thought, though, and, and I think you, you were really great on it as well. It was interesting about how things are changing in terms of, you know, with everything that's happened with Twitter, that social media is more fragmented now. There isn't, like, a place where all Doctor Who fans are, you know, like... I feel like it might Blue Sky might become that place, but it's probably going to take a little while. So that was interesting in terms of how do you promote your podcast and get the word out there, and also how they're evolving in terms of 
using visuals and, and maybe becoming more like videos, which I know the one that Conrad was recently interviewed on, uh, which is the old Doctor Who show, that, that was a video as well, so you, you could watch that on YouTube. I, for me, I feel because podcast listening is something that I do when I'm doing something else, when I'm driving, walking the dogs, mowing the lawn, uh, you know, kind of jobs around the house, it, it probably probably isn't going to make much difference to me as a, as a consumer of them anyway. I'll probably just keep listening to the, through the app with my earphones on. But it, it's interesting there that there is that evolution towards, uh, towards that as well. You can't watch video while driving. You can't watch video on the New York City subway. Mm. And I, one thing that I have in common with Simon Gurrier, he listens to Doctor Who literature while washing his dishes. And I listen to Trap One, another podcast, while washing my dishes. So Simon <laughs> and I have similar habits. So it's difficult to wash dishes and watch live streaming at the same time. Also, I, we have long-form shows. Trap One episodes go from one to two hours. Doctor Who lives for about 90 minutes. TikTok is geared towards short attention span theater. It's short vignettes rather than long-form interviews. So I'm not sure that my format and also my demographic, Doctor Who lit almost exclusively caters to 40 and up. So I'm not sure that I would have anything much to say to... And there was a meetup earlier today, which I did not go to, Whovians of TikTok, Doctor Who fans on TikTok, had a meetup right across the hall in Panel E. Uh, but yeah, it's fascinating about how the willful self-destruction of Twitter under one uh, evil South African billionaire is affecting all of our little fandoms. Mm. Second panel was one that I moderated. This was Deathmatch. It's an annual tradition, usually moderated by Paul Cornell. Sean Lyon, who's the program director and the, and the head man at Galley One, he gave it to me this year based on the 60 for 60 panel that I had at L.I. Who in New York in the summer of 2023. And then a special episode of Doctor Who Lit, Sean and I going through our top 60s and critiquing each other. So we had 10 panelists on stage, including John Dorney from Big Finish and Lisa McMullen from Big Finish and Ben Patton, who's done some work on the spinoff media. Uh, Nathan, who is a, a Who artist with a contract, and he's going to be on this episode, I believe, a little bit later on. Yeah, hopefully going to speak to him. Yeah, he's from Pixel Who. Yeah, he and his wife, uh, uh, Lee, are phenomenal people. Yeah. We had dinner with them last night. Not the name drop. But <laughs> uh, Nathan was also on the panel. He gave very good answers. Yeah. So there was 10 panelists, and we each gave six stories, and that came up with the top 60 list. Mark, I don't think you applied to be a panelist, but I pressed you into service as the scorekeeper. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was writing the, the stories down on the whiteboards. We had a whiteboard for classic series stories and a whiteboard for new series stories. So interesting, you asked the audience, first of all, whether they thought the classic series or the new series might yield more favourite stories. It was pretty close, but I think the new series was about six ahead by the end, wasn't it? I think it was 32 to 28 in the final tally. That's right, yeah. But there was a couple of cheats, because there was the TV movie, Where Do You Slot That? Night of the Doctor, Where Do You Slot That? And then one big finish audio, Where Do You Slot That? Yeah. So I don't know where you put the wild cards on the board, but it was very, very close to even, which I was happy with. Mm -hmm. We did have one younger panelist who had not watched any of the classic series. She was strictly a new series fan. I did, again, I had a long list. I gave four of mine from the classic and two from the new. I wanted to pick interesting stories. So this is great. Um, I... Obviously, as a moderator, I went first, and I brought a prop for my first story. I brought... I was Oppenheimer for Halloween, and my wife was Barbie, so together for Halloween, we were Barbenheimer. (laughs) And 
while Barbie is licensed, you can go to the store and buy a Barbie costume. Christopher Nolan did not license Oppenheimer, so you can't <laughs> go to Spirit Halloween in the States and buy an Oppenheimer costume. You can go online and buy from overseas a bootleg 2023 movie physicist costume, which is what I did. So I got a cheap imitation Western-style hat of the type that Oppenheimer wore in Los Alamos, New Mexico. So I pull that out of my bag and I put it on and I stand up and I sing the first 16 bars of the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon. And the audience was clapping along and I was tempted to go for another 16 bars, but I just didn't have it in me. <laughs> but also we were on a 60-second limit. Each family had 60 seconds to make their pitch and I had another audience member, a very eerily accurate 10th Doctor cosplay with the pinstripe brown suit as my timekeeper, so I didn't really have a chance to do the whole performance. Maybe that'll be a bonus episode for Trap One Patreon subscribers. Yeah, that was, uh, that was very good. But sitting next to me is John Dorney, and John Dorney was even more prepared than I was. He stands up immediately after me, strips off his jacket, and there is one of the best Doctor Who t-shirts you will ever buy, Insect Movement by Rosalind de Winter. It's the famous slide capture from uh, Doctor Who and the Web Planet. And he had that, and he made a pitch for Tenth Plan- for Web Planet as his favorite story. Then Lisa McMullen, the big Finnish writer, her favorite story, or one of her one of her favorites, she gives a good pitch for the Sensorites. By the way, I happen to agree wholeheartedly. Sensorites didn't make my top system; it was on the bubbling under. It was it was it was a close finalist. So that means that the first three stories given are Hardnell stories, and I was very excited. Can we do the full Hardnell? No, as it turns out, we can't. Uh, and the new series ended up winning. But then, when it comes around again, I do my second story, and John Dorney stands up and he takes off the Web Planet t-shirt, and there is a t-shirt for the Happiness Patrol, and it's the Candyman with a caption advertising the Candy Kitchen. So now John Dorney said he was wearing three layers all day in preparation for this one moment of the panel. <laughs> so when it came around to him a third time, everyone thought he was going to stand up and take his shirt off. And he goes, no, you're not going to be... I'm not, I'm not here to talk about the beast below. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he had no props for the rest of the discussion. But John Dorney came loaded for bear, massive respect. I thought my hat prop was cool. He brought two different shirts as props. A shooting out while cosplayer just walked by. Very good. We're seeing some fabulous cosplay here, by the way. What are some of the cosplay highlights for you? Yeah, there's some, there's some tremendous stuff. Um, there's some, yeah, a lot of kilts uh, which is brand new isn't it from, from, from this year's Christmas special yes. people, have, uh, people have managed to get I don't know how easy it is to get hold of kilts in, uh, in America uh, obviously I live quite close to, to the Scottish border so uh, I can get hold of a quilt uh, a kilt pretty easily but um, yeah a lot of people have sourced them for this so yes yeah, a lot of Shutagatwa style kilts there's uh, well yeah there's I can't even think of it um, uh, anything off the top of my head but yeah there's there's a ton of cosplay a huge difference I think from British conventions where there is cosplay but not to this extent and not this elaborate uh, you can tell that loads and loads of effort has gone into it there's so, a lot uh, of Amy Ponds there's a lot of Donna yeah. Nobles there's a very a good Nicola Bryan season 22 cosplayer I've seen a Davros Yes. Um, I have. There are often a Barbara Wright and a couple of Zarbies, but I have not seen them this year. Yeah. Um, uh, but, all the doctors represented. I think. I think I've seen. Yeah, basically, uh, basically at least one of every doctor. My friend Stephanie did a Zoe Crotons cosplay. She had the leather Western outfit. Yes. With the miniskirt. Yeah. 
But yeah, people and there's 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 an older woman going around as William Hartnell, complete with the astrakhan hat. Yeah, and the white the white wig and everything. Yeah, that's uh, that's an excellent one as well. A lot of time lords. And and when we were recording Doctor Lucian this morning, it was a gathering of the Sisterhood of Khan, a big, big group, including of, a three year old girl in a mini Sisterhood costume. Yeah, that, that was, was brilliant. That was great to see that, that they all got together for a photo shoot. In terms of attire, Simon Gurrier and I were both wearing T-shirts designed by Jim Sangster inadvertently. Yeah. <laughs> both showed up wearing Jim T-shirts, so that was phenomenal. I'll have to send Jim a photo of that later. Um, the third panel that I was that I did yesterday, I was not supposed to be on. I had pitched to Sean being on the Target panel because I have a Target's podcast and Sean has been on my show. The panel ended up having Paul Cornell, Gary Russell, James Goss, Mark Morris, and then Stacy Smith was also there. She has written extensively about Doctor Who, a good friend of mine. Stacy's flight ended up being delayed, so now there's room for me on the panel. I should mention my friend Kathy Sullivan, who's also uh, an author, was on the panel as well. I ended up being the only person on that panel who is not a published author, unless you count my contributions to the outside-in books and some of the uh, Time Unincorporated books earlier, but I am not a writer the way that they are writers. Mm-hmm. Gary was supposed to be the moderator. He did not want to moderate the panel, so I ended up, two minutes after the panel started, I learned as a last-minute replacement that I was also going to be moderating the panel. <laughs> Having not read the three new novelizations yesterday, I only have a copy of one. You brought me a copy of this Wild Blue Yonder. This is the last call for Alex Kingston green screen photos. Again, this is the last call for Alex Kingston green screen photos. <laughs> we are not on that line, obviously. <laughs> but I've only read a fraction of one of the three books. The other books have not reached the States yet, and I could not find them on sale in the dealer's room. That's quite surprising, actually. I thought, yeah, none of the novelizations of the of the four RTT, RTD2 specials yet uh, are in the dealer's room. It seems like they missed a trick there. I think they would have sold like hotcakes. And all four of the authors are here. Yeah. Unless you say, wait a minute, but you and Mark should have gotten to the dealer's room early. We opened the dealer's room at 10 a.m. Friday morning, and there were no copies of the books as the dealer's room opened at 10 a.m. It was like... I just said last call for Alex Greenston Kingspan photos. And it's your fault. Your fault. And you heard it here first, folks. But that was a very fun panel and got good audience participation. And the authors are terrific. Everybody had funny, interesting stories to tell about the writings of these books. Paul had written the Twice Upon a Time novelization, and then you had the three writers with the three newest paperbacks. Esme, who did Church on Ruby Road, was not on that panel. She was on a separate main stage panel this morning called Novelizing Doctor Who, and that included Peter Angelides as the moderator, written many Doctor Who novels, and it included Steve Cole, a longtime editor of the Doctor Who books and author of some, and it also had Esme, uh, Jakimi Pearson. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I didn't get there in time to hear her last name being pronounced. She is very young, phenomenally young, which is great because after a certain point, many Doctor Who fans become grizzled men of uh, 50 and up, you being a notable exception. So she had a lot to say about how she was picked to write the book and what she put into the book. And the book is very, Church on Ruby Road, a very personal novelization for her. I'm looking forward to going to another panel with her tomorrow and hearing more from her and hopefully getting a chance to speak to her one-on-one. But I am very... As fans of Trap One know, I had mixed emotions about the Church on Ruby Road episode. I'm very excited for her book because she is writing this in part from a personal point of view. 
<laughs> Sounds like she's used some of her own family history to inform the yes. backstory for um, Cherry Sunday. The Cherry Sunday. I couldn't remember the grandmother's name. Yeah. Her her own grandmother came here, came to the UK on Operation Windrush in the late yeah. 1940s, as Cherry would have in that episode. Yeah, so that's uh, yeah, that's, that's really going to bring a personal element to that, I think. When, and you that was, a, when you get a writer who can relate to the material, that's always a plus, book-wise. And it was really fascinating to hear about these novelizations in the way that the, the, the writers were selected and what their brief was. So Mark Morris, for Wild Blue Yonder, was not allowed to elaborate at all on, on the aliens that originally um, inhabited the ship or the, cap, the, the, the ship's captain, the horse-like alien. He, there was no embellishments allowed. And I think, and having read that on the plane over, because uh, I, I got the review copy that we got for Trap One that I brought for you, the, that that it's a very very straight retelling. Whereas the giggle, which I know you haven't read yet, is an incredibly inventive and and like they did on the panel, I'll talk round it and not give anything away. We will be talking about it on Trap One um, in in a few weeks with, with Fraser and Mark Doddick, and obviously that will be the, that will carry spoiler warnings. But it's an incredibly inventive telling of the story and and possibly uniquely for a novelization of a story that we've seen there is a huge twist in the telling of it yes. which is fantastic and I think probably the thing that, that isn't much of a spoiler that he was talking about quite widely on, on both panels is the, the fact that they didn't have the rights for Spice Up Your Life so having turned in the manuscript they said well you've got to change that so he wrote the copyright lawyer, the music copyright lawyer, who he had to deal with in as a character into the book, which <laughs> is really just like a nice kind of James Goss-like cheeky kind of thing, which, uh, which I love. But it also means that the audiobook adaptation of the Giggle novelization has different text in certain places from the print novelization. So my question on the panel on Friday was, is there going to be a novelization of the audiobook of the novelization? Yeah. Because they would be two different texts. Because that was interesting. Well, he said that he had to have the same number of chapters. And again, without any spoilers, I can think of at least one chapter that doesn't have any text in the traditional sense. So, yeah, things had to be sort of re redistributed so that there was the same number of chapters as the as the book, but that but there had to be obviously something for the narrator to read out uh, in that. If you have a chance to see James Goss on any panel in the UK or whatever your country of origin may be, James Goss is a high-energy individual, and he is a trip to sit next to and to talk to and to hear speak even from the audience. So that was another... There's been a lot of highlights to this con so far. We've had a packed two first days. We have other interviews to bring to you to be interspersed, but James Goss is an incredible human being. Very funny, sarcastic, quirky... You don't really know how he's going to answer a question because sometimes he answers the question really straight and gives you a, gives you some information, and sometimes he just gives a really um, off the wall kind of <laughs> answer, doesn't he? My, but, mo- my mother raised me on Marx Brothers movies, and the Marx Brothers were agents of chaos. Groucho Marx does not allow any sentence to go by in any of his movies unless he's riffing on it. Yeah. I was raised in that tradition, and I unfortunately have this Groucho Marx habit in real life of riffing sarcastically or building on everything, which is not the way ordinary people communicate, and it doesn't make me very popular in conversations. James Goss is able to pull off that Groucho Marx shtick of commenting on everything, but he makes it work in a way that I have utterly failed to do. And lastly, we should point out there was a surprise Shooty Gatwa cameo, yes. a special video message from Shooty Gatwa from... I believe it was an old TARDIS set. 
and talking about what's in store for the new series. Yeah, that was really, that was really exciting. We got to, we I went into the Alex Kingston panel, and that was really interesting as well because he talked about Doctor Who, but but some of her recent work as well. I didn't know she played Prospero on stage oh, in wow. the Tempest. Uh, for the Royal Shakespeare Company, it was the first time that they gender swapped that role as well. So that, oh, wow. all that that was fascinating and about her wider career. But just before the panel, Sean, who's the the convention organizer, said, "This is a surprise. You'll want to be in the room between this one and the next panel." So I messaged you, uh, and you got in the queue outside. And I I kind of thought it's, it's going to be a message from Russell T Davis or something like that. And it was Shooter Gatwa himself. It was obviously a really official looking thing because, like you say, it was on the Tardis set. It had the Disney logo on it. And yeah, it was just just a nice thing saying, you know, you can't be here because they're busy shooting Doctor Who. A few hints, I think, that we already know from Doctor Who magazine and, and Russell's column about what's coming up. And then yeah, the announcement that there's uh, that Disney Plus have sent every, a poster for all the attendees. So we all got our posters. It's a gorgeous poster. It's got the Disney logo. By the way, the Disney logo is Walt Disney's signature, even though he passed away 60 years ago. That's a nice bit of legacy. Doctor Who streaming May 2024. BBC presents your Time Lord transporting, reality warping, dimension distorting, universe saving, wormhole evading. Nothing is probable, anything is possible. Time and relative dimension in space, cosmic joyride awaits. And yes, I did that all in one breath, dear listen. <laughs> snappy, snappy. <laughs> cool, well, we'll uh, we're off to have drinks with Billy Piper and Camille Kajuri, among others. And second, Akinola and Stephen Cole and Sean Dingwall. So we will uh, we will check in later. Thank you. Greyhound leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. So, big warm trap one. Welcome to Gareth Cavanaugh. Gareth, thank you for talking to us. Pleasure. And you are here with Cutaway Comics again. You had some amazing stuff on sale. Now you are the publisher of Warp Warp, the fanzine, correct? Yep, that's correct. And how, so, did, how did that come into being? Well, Warp Warp came to being actually as a result of another fanzine being published, I know, being cancelled, and a book proposal falling through, but I had the only one out of the people who were working on it who'd actually done any material on the comic strips. <laughs> so I had uh, interviewed Adrian Simon, I had a big chapter written on the Cybermen, and, and I had I had stuff ready to go, and I thought, well, I don't want to waste this. Why don't we do another fanzine so it was meant to be a one-off called Warp Warp which would look at the comics and art and Doctor Who magazine and would have a nice set of free, free gifts free transfers and that was it and it did rather well so we, so then we thought oh, well okay we'll, we'll do another one so we did another one and we've just kind of rolled like that We're, our public schedule's a bit like Douglas Adams in it since I saw <laughs> there are long 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 gaps between issues but you do always get them and you are at number six now and this we're is at number six yeah number six has a special focus well number six is something different so for the 60th we've looked almost exclusively at everything that's around an unearthly child and the making of that and the talent and conjectures and what ifs and great talent and of course our free gift is the animated uh, opening to David Whittaker's brilliant, exciting adventure with Dalek's book, A Meeting on the Common. And not to publicize myself during your interview, but I do have a small piece of the book, courtesy of Colin, the editor. You certainly do. Yes, it was the um, it was about the target, wasn't it? Yes, I was able to interview, all, again, all courtesy and credit to Colin, I was able to interview Michael Stevens yes. and Nigel Robinson, who 
commissioned, produced, and really respectably. Yeah, it was going to be a new, brand new adaptation of another Chad's one of the great what ifs. It was it, 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 um, narrated by um, uh, William Russell. It's supposed to be phenomenal, but we can't hear it. And it was the last narration William Russell ended up doing for the line, and then Audio Go went under. Right. And now there are copyright issues. Ah, uh, because their deals would have to be renewed bloody hard. That's right, but it was... Uh, but, I it, a, but it exists, doesn't it? It exists on someone's hard drive. It exists somewhere, and unfortunately Nigel could not show us any of it, but he gave as many details as he can during the interview, so I think it's a must-read, even though I was the interviewer. Well, the Target books are very special to you, aren't they? Absolutely. Because, of course, you've, you... Um, you, haven't you done a piece for um, for the Hinchcliffe book as well? I do not. Oh, you haven't. Sorry, we'll have to edit that bit out there. <laughs> oh, I am. I am happy. I've got conflated with the um, with the four four six. I am excited to read the Hinchcliffe book, and that was the next point. You had a gorgeous series of glossy posters adapted from each of Philip's three seasons of Doctor Who, autographed yes. by Philip, and I got. Probably not Philip's favorite story, but the Revenge of the Cybermen with the black helmeted cyber leader, that was the one that I bought from you. I could not resist. You've picked the best bit of art, I think, and that's the correct thing to do because it's a run of 18 stories, so I think Philip did 16 stories over three years, and then we've done one for the TARDIS um, and one with Philip as the Morbius Doctor, the, the Cavalier. So so yeah, you, this, is, this is one of the rewards with the big Hinchcliffe book, and for the bigger packages, we've got them signed by all kinds of lovely people that knew and worked with Philip, including Tom Baker, who signed 100 prints for us. So, wow. lovely man, lovely man, and was keen to support Philip in his book. So, I did a journey down to his house, dropped them off, and then three weeks later, went down, picked them up, came back with them, and, and yeah, lovely. For those who are interested in the Philip Hinchcliffe book, which I believe Gary Russell was editing, yes. is the crowdfunding still open for that? Yes, it is. So we've done something new. So there's um, a legacy campaign still open on Indiegogo. So if you go to Indiegogo and search for Philip Hinchcliffe, um, that, that will come. So it's, it's brilliant. So it allows us to continue selling some of those big merchandise packages. And it's the only way to pre-order the book at the moment. So if you just want to buy the book, the softback, the hardback, it starts at £30. So it's, it's, it's as straight as we can get. And I also got from you, you have a lot of trade paperback comics for sale. So you have the Lytton volume, the Omega volume, and you have a Paradise Towers volume, which I bought we, from you. We do. Um, so, yeah, we people have been asking us about trades now for nearly four years. So we always go, yeah, of course we'll do trades, and then we're busy, and of course we'll do trades. So we've finally done trades. So we've got trades for the first three, and because we've now moved to prestige volumes, which is complete stories in 50 pages, so a bit like The Killing Joke. We've got those as well. So we've got Steve Gallagher's Faustine, which is continuing the story of the Tharrells, and a brilliant Omega and Sutek double bill. So, yeah, we've got lots of lovely things, and people have been great. People have popped by and chatted and said hello. A refreshing number of people have said, oh, yeah, we've supported the Kickstarter. So it's, it's good. It's, it's really lovely, as this convention always is. Yes, and I know I contributed to the Kickstarter you had before the Philip one, but memories already escaped me what it was. Inferno? Yes, Inferno. Inferno, so John Ridgway's working hard on that in the moment, and we're just gathering together everyone's photos because we've got a thing where people can be extras, so they can be a, a, you know, a scientist, a soldier, um, a, a slave worker, uh, 
bloke in pub all <laughs> options are possible so so yeah so that's coming along quite nicely so I would think Inferno should be wrapped by May I would have thought and out in the summer and of course Philip Hinchcliffe um last week's happening to essays because Philip's given us a lot of feedback a lot of constructive feedback you really get a point that what makes his year so good is his attention to detail you, you've met Philip nothing gets past him yes. he's interested in the details so we're you know you raise your game as a retired trial lawyer I am used to working very hard for depositions examinations cross-examinations Philip expects a great amount of preparation. I was more nervous talking to Philip the first time than I was for any trial that I've ever done. But he is so kind and so generous with his time that by the last interview with him, it was just a great rapport. He's a wonderful man. Yeah, he, he's, he's collegiate. He's great to work with. That's what we, we hoped. And, you know, you have to win his confidence. Like you say, he has to know that you're going to take this as seriously as he is, that your attention to detail is good, and that there's an intellectual debate to be had. And he's, he's, he's brilliant. I mean, there's a reason he's Doctor Who is the best. Absolutely. I totally agree. Well, Gareth, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure to see you at every Gallifrey, and always a pleasure to stop by your booth. Always a pleasure to be here, and we'll see you in the bar a little bit later. Absolutely. I'm joined now by Sutton and Sophia. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. So we met last night at the drinks reception with Billy Piper and Camille Kajuri and Sean Dingwell and a couple of other people. Um, that was we, we got Billy Piper first at our table, and that was a really lovely moment uh, when you got to tell her, you know, how much she meant to you and how it brought you together as friends. I had always wanted to tell her how much she had like meant to me. And because her, her work has been a part of my life for a very long time, and so the fact that I actually got to tell her, because all of my friends who I'm still currently like with, I met through her work and her, so then her getting to know like that, like that, how much she impacted my life, I wanted her to know, because I feel like that's something you don't always get to know when you're an actor, how much you truly do change people's lives. Not just in like, oh, this character made me do this, this, and this, but it's like, she brought me and Sophia together, and now we've been friends and we talk every day, and we never would have met otherwise. Like, we're very different people, I realize, especially. <laughs> but, but it's yeah. like, we would not have met if it wasn't for her, and it's great. Like, we've been friends for probably three and a half years now. Yeah. That's amazing. I guess it was just, like, really sweet because, well, we met during COVID. Yeah. I think. We became and friends. Yeah, the guest reception was just really nice because, like, I, you know, you, when you, like, get your picture taken with one of them, it's, like, 15 seconds of interaction. Yeah. Or, like, you know, I mean, not to brag, but Billy Piper said she liked my shirt, so <laughs> not to brag, but she did. Um, but, yeah, the guest reception, like, I don't know, it's more, like, intimate and one-on-one. -on -one, or not one-on-one, -on -one, but I guess, like, eight-on-one <laughs> or something. Um, but, yeah, I, it was just really nice to... Yeah, I think about the photos and your autographs don't give you that opportunity really to speak. Yeah. And I guess, you know, actors that don't do conventions, they don't get that feedback, like you say, they don't get to know how much they've changed people or, you know, it means to them. So, yeah, it was, it was just, it was a really, really nice moment. Yeah, yeah it was lovely. I, it was, my friends were all patiently awaiting the updates. Yeah. <laughs> everyone knows how much I love her. I'm going to tell a funny story. Like, when Sophia told me that Billy was going to be here this year, because we met originally last year, with Jody, yeah. Um, she was like, and I was like, I can't come next year. And then she was like, 
Billy Piper's gonna be there. <laughs> yeah, and Billy Piper's literally gonna literally, be there. Literally, are you sure about not going? That was like her last words, and I was, and I, I cried hysterically. <laughs> and I don't think anyone believed how truly hysterical I was about the fact that I wasn't gonna get to go. And it happened, obviously, but it's like the fact that I'm here, but I wasn't gonna be here. Yeah, it is kind of crazy when you think about how like. It just started because I searched up, like, on Twitter. Because I realized, like, oh, wait, I could, like, be following people on Twitter about, like, my interest. And not just, I don't know, about the news or something. When I started using Twitter, like, more regularly, like, during COVID, I just searched up, like, 10th Doctor and, like, Rose Tyler. And I, like, found all these people, including Sutton. And, yeah, Twitter is crazy. And the internet is really crazy how you can... Like, I've met a lot of people who I never would have met and, like, talked to them and learned about their lives who I... On the other side of the world, it's really... The internet is a very good place, but also a really bad place. Yeah, but it it did. Like, I live on the complete opposite end of the country from Sophia, and it's the only time we ever get to hang out. Yeah. But we do. So... Yeah. Um, I, I also got to meet a lot of cool people, too, who I've been I've known also since 2020, so it's like, wow, it's like, it's been such a great experience. Yeah, and and everyone is so nice here, like, yeah. I don't know, you, like, I've waited in lines with people, like, to get people's autographs and stuff, and then you kind of, like, every time you see them around, you're like, oh, hey, how's your day going? Or, like, us, like, I was like, oh, my God, hey, and so... Yeah, because everyone's got such a shared interest. You yeah, it's so easy to strike up a conversation. Yeah, so. and I haven't met one like I haven't even met one like snarky person. No. So that's great. <laughs> what a long line of women! Wow. God. And what what are the highlights of the event? Um, I know you went to the the panel that had Billy Piper and Kamika Jones. Oh yeah. Well, they- I missed that unfortunately. And after I saw all three of them separately last night, I really regretted not seeing them together on the stage. They were so funny. This, okay. They were arguing about the pronunciation of alt, like, as an alternate universe. Right, and, okay. Like, and, he, and Sean Dingwall was going alt because they're British, and sometimes... <laughs> I know... That, sorry, I know you're British. Um, um, something just go... Like, the A's yeah. are weird and, and different. Not weird, different. Yeah. Um, and then they were arguing about the pronunciation of alt versus alt, and I was like, this is literally the type of stuff I would do with my parents. Yeah. Like, you can really tell that they love... That they have such an appreciation for each other. It was just such a funny panel. And that it's real. Yeah. Like, that it seemed... It felt very real. Like, it's not just... I don't know, like... You can tell they actually like each other. Yeah, they, they actually like each other. There was yeah. a moment last night when, when they handed over from Camille to Sean, and and uh, they each had a glass of wine, and Sean said to her, I thought you weren't drinking tonight? And it yeah. really, really sounded like a married couple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gone out to a dinner party. Yeah. And uh, so I thought you weren't drinking tonight. <laughs> yeah, they do really seem like a family. Yeah. I guess another panel I really liked was The Confession oh, Dial. The confessional No, it's, it's like that talk was, about your unpopular opinions. Yeah, that was really right. great. I also like the Canon Cops pan. These are like the small panels I went to. The can- So shout out to all of these people. And um, in the House of the Mouse. Oh. I was really looking forward to that one and I was glad. I saw that on the website like months ago and I was like, oh, I've got to go to the In the House of the Mouse. Yeah, and I went to the Star Trek crossover panel. Oh, I yeah. love Star Trek. 
Um, so that was fun. I felt that was, um, it was kind of intense. Also, not gonna lie, like, one of the guys who worked there was, like, work who, like, wrote the Assimilation comics. Oh, right, the But, Titan like, comic. but, like, he was very intense. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this energy's kind of mean. Adric is right there. Like, I know it's fun to hate on Adric, but, like, he literally made us just shout, shut up, Adric. And I was just thinking, you know, he's a real person. Like, the actor is right here. Yeah. He's, he's in a the real building. Person. Like, he's in the building. And then someone said that, and he was like, let's shout it louder. And I was just like, what? I was just like, ooh, okay. The- All right. But it was, it was, I'm glad it went. Because yeah. I love Star Trek. I love Doctor Who. And then, like... Captain Jack and Captain Kirk would absolutely hook up. I'm glad we're all on the same page. The, also, the Alex Kingston interview yesterday on Saturday was really, really funny. And I love Alex Kingston. Um, we got our pictures taken with her yesterday, too. And she was just really funny and really sweet. And her line for autographs is really long because she, like, talks to everyone. Yeah, and they cut me just now. So, like, I, I am going to... I'm scoping out for when they're letting people line up because I am getting my picture signed she like like they're like kidnapping me like grabbing my scarf it's like such a funny picture yeah it's really good but so you're at the alex kingston panel i i was at that one really enjoyed it but then we had the surprise oh yeah 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 yeah, so yes. you, um, I don't think anybody knew that was happening. They, they announced before the panel said there's a surprise coming. Or, you, you know? Okay, they said that there was going to be a surprise earlier, and I said to Sophia, I said, it's going to be a video from Shooty. I didn't know how I knew, but I just sensed it. I'm like, this is a video I, from Shooty or Russell. I thought, know, I, thought I thought Russell. that too. Yeah. I thought it was either going to be Shooty, David Tennant, or Russell T. Davis. I was thinking Russell T. Davis. Uh, I was really surprised when it shook out. Like, and it was, it was really official, wasn't it? It had the Disney logo. He was on the TARDIS set. Yeah. It was great. Filming season two. Yeah. And I'm so excited for him. (laughs) I know. 16. I don't even care. I know. (laughs) Or like 41 or what is it? Yeah. I think it might be 41. I'm so excited for him though. And yeah, I got a poster of the thing that they posted or whatever, the like exclusive poster. It's in my comments. Yeah. It was really weird, wasn't it? Because then just after that, it was on the official Twitter account. I know. Yeah. And like they do all the announcing, and then oh, we get yeah. to see it first. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, but we have like a physical, tangible no, thing. No, we do. So it's even better, honestly. It is. Gallifrey One is better than Comic Con. It's much safer, probably. <laughs> I know. Yeah, this is just a really nice. I feel like it's all kind of like a family, a little bit. Yeah, it's friendlier. It's, yeah. it's chilled out. Yeah. I funny story. I went to go find alcohol last night, and I didn't know how because I am 21, guys. Um, <laughs> I went, I was like, oh, I want to drink, I want to like, experience, and then I was like, oh, I don't know how, what to order, and I went and found this guy and only spoken to a couple times, and I was like, hey, what do I do? Just because I had spoken to him, and he, like, tried to help me, and, like, went off, like, to help me, and find, find something to order, and, like, how, and, like, gave me the confidence to, like, go up and try and order, but the bartenders were busy, so I didn't order anything. But it was, like, the fact that I had just spoken to this guy, and I asked him about drinking, and he was like... Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a really nice place. Yeah. And very like accepting. Yeah, I've noticed it's really good about accessibility, really good yeah. about gender diversity. Yeah. I honestly I know that there are some really scary parts of the Doctor Who fandom who are really awful and I thought they would be here. But they're not. I think no. that's because it's like a loud minority. Yeah. Honestly. Like they don't leave the basements. Like no, yeah, they don't. exactly. <laughs> if you told them there was a Doctor Who con, they'd probably be like, ugh. 
woke nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leaving the house, woke nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> when they see a commercial, woke nonsense. Yeah. Bro. Yeah. That was so funny that Andrew Tate watched the Star Beast. Oh, really? I didn't it see. was so... Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse. No, you can, yeah. Okay. How did he do that? Andrew Tate walked... I'm in... I don't know. I know. I thought he was in prison. I imagine watching the Star Beast from prison. He was like, so it's it's the part where the meep is talking about like the what does the meep say? Like the indefinite article, like when they're in the living room. Yeah. Yeah. And and Andrew Tate is watching with someone. I don't know who it is. I wish I didn't even know Andrew Tate's name. But the guy goes like, how could they do that to the meep? And then Andrew Tate just goes, who the fuck is meep? (laughs) It's so funny. It's so funny because he almost says it in a way where it's like he wants, but he genuinely wants to know and like understand the story. Like that's right. the way he says it. It's really funny. It's a great video. <laughs> great. Well, thank you yeah. very much for taking the time. Thank that you so much. So fun. Yeah. Okay, so I'm joined now by US Jason and. Another Jason. This is Jason Davis. The Jason Davis. The Jason Davis. The definite article. Welcome to Chat One. Thank you for having me. And of course, everyone knows who I am, but Jason and I, whenever we do a doctor's literature together, we call ourselves the two Jasons. That our emails to each other often have increasingly complicated doctor who's sign-off references to various Jasons. The original, you might say, the definite article. Jason and I, I've signed off a couple of times before the nine months. There's a lot of Jasons in Doctor Who fandom. And we have UK Jason, of course, who's a fixture of this show. I feel like I've met about five Jasons in the two days that I've been here. <laughs> I will not say which sort, but there is going to be a Doctor Who lit towards the end of the run where we are going to have the three Jasons, UK Jason, US Jason, and me Jason. Are we? Yes, we I, are. I didn't even know this. I, When I was looking at my schedule, I realized that I had both signed you up for different aspects of the same story, so we have to record at the same time. Over to you, Jason. Thanks, Jason. What do you say, Jason? <laughs> the three Jasons. So, Jason Davis, you have an extensive back catalog of writing and editing about various science fiction properties, many of which have been showcased here um, cast-wise at Gallifrey One. Uh, this is your first Trap One. Tell us a little bit about your impressive back catalog. Uh, well, I was uh, editor of a number of books on the TV series Babylon 5, uh, and I'm currently writing a book on the series, or multiple books on the series. Uh, it was started as one book, and then it grew. Uh, I did a book called Writing the X-Files uh, from my time uh, as a screenwriting journalist back in the aughts. Uh, that was uh, another one... That's one, the only one that's actually credited to me at the moment, uh, not actually out. Uh, and then I've uh, edited a number of books for the late Harlan Ellison, who, of course, has a Doctor Who tie, having written the introduction to the pinnacle reprints of the Target novels. Which is how you and I came to meet, because I found you through David Barsky, who's a producer on my show, and he learned that you had the original typewritten manuscripts from Harlan's collection. And we were interested to learn, because you had compiled Harlan's unedited introduction for your book. Yes. This book needs no introduction by Harlan Ellison, which is about... Just a collection of introductions afterwards and uh, other front and back matter. Liner notes by Harlan. And we learned that there was a line that was actually cut out by Pinnacle Books, because he makes a reference to the odious anti-LGBT 
American activist made infamous in the movie Milk with uh, Sean Penn, Anita Bryant. And that was the only line that was cut out as presumably being too topical for the 11-year-old boys reading the pinnacle books. <laughs> I, I can't say for certain that I know the reasons on that uh, because I, to be honest, had not noticed that it had been cut out until you pointed it out to me. Uh, but I, I, I assume Andrew Ettinger, who was the, uh, the line editor, uh, might have had uh, a discussion with Harlan about that. He was very respectful of Harlan's work, so I imagine it was done with consent. Yes, the reference to Anita Bryant was probably a bridge too far for the doctor audience. And bearing in mind that Pinnacle Books did a lot of right-wing fiction. The, the, the Exterminator series? Is it Exterminator? It's, it's something like the Execution. There was, there's men's, one. Men, men's, men's adventure yes. novels, let's say. There was one in the back of one of the Doctor Who Pinnacles, and it was a series of books, and I've forgotten the name because over 50, the memory's gone. So there was a male crusader, probably in the Chuck Norris mold, whose job is to weed out the commies and the pinkos and then the impolite word referring to people of non-heterosexual origin, which I will not use in the podcast, but it was uh, written in the blurb in Pinnacle Books as a matter of fact, as if all good people believe these things. Uh, that I have not seen and I can't speak to, but I'm not terribly surprised. So the, refer- the derogatory reference to Anita Bryant did not survive, but uh, Dave Barsky and I are both big fans of Jason. He's now been on Doctor Who several times. So what brings you to Galley, and how many Galleys is this for you? Habit? (laughs) (laughs) It's what I do in the middle of February. My first one was 2003, so this is my 21st since we didn't do 2021. Wow, so every year since all three. And I went to my first seven galleys completely unaware of your existence because we were not traveling in the same circles. And at a, at a certain point, we were up to 3,600 attendees. So if you don't know who you're looking for, it's easy to miss somebody. Oh, I, I, at the Airtel, which was the uh, hotel that preceded this one, when it was only 300 people, a woman that I had been in a play with, we'd done productions of it every day for two months, or rehearsals or productions, one or the other, passed me numerous times in the hall, and we didn't know about it until 10 years later. (laughs) And that was with 300 people in a tiny, tiny, tiny little hotel, so. What are the highlights of the con for you this year? I really enjoyed Simon Garrier's talk. Yes, we we spoke about that. It was the first one on the first day absolute set high benchmark it was fantastic and I didn't even realize that Jason was in the room with us because I was texting him I haven't seen you turns out he was right there next to us the whole time (laughs) that was a very well attended panel and Simon we recorded a DW lit with Simon this morning he is delightful he is incredibly well spoken ask him a question and he has a multi-paragraph perfectly edited answer just off the cuff right off the top of his head in a way that I could only aspire to well and I admire somebody who who sees something like the, the story of David Whitaker and then goes and digs up as much as he had. You and I were both at his panel last year. That's right. Which was all David Whitaker all the time. And then we see this panel this year, which is kind of an offshoot of that, all the stuff that he discovered while researching David Whitaker, the stuff that precedes Doctor Who, the shows that uh, were in place before it, some of which are fascinating, some of which I wish to now track down and learn more about. <laughs> Why well, I'm desperate to watch the surviving episode of Gary Halliday because yes. that three-minute introduction is... Bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot to recap. I mean, can you imagine if every episode of Dark Shadows started that way? Oh, God. Oh, gosh. 
<laughs> this is the house of Elizabeth Collins Stoddard. Elizabeth Collins Stoddard has not left Collinswood in 18 years because of this man, Paul Stoddard. And we're not going to show you until season four, but Paul Stoddard's friend, Jason McGuire, was part of an evil conspiracy, and he has tried to blackmail Elizabeth Collins Stoddard with the help of Willie Loomis. You'd get one minute of story time after the recap. Yeah. And then it'd be, you know, in credits and off the next week. And once you get to the 1795 storyline, this is Naomi Collins. The 1966 storyline is Naomi Collins. And her husband is Joshua Collins, who is played by Lewis Edmonds, who, by the way, is her brother in the 1966 storyline. And then we just go on for pages and pages and pages and pages. And that's why I admire Simon, because he goes into all of these things and mm-hmm. gets discursive and finds all these interesting things like we just did a loop into Dark Shadows because of, that's the way that my mind works that's obviously the way his mind works and that's what I appreciate it's also the way Douglas Adams' mind works and I've been at two Douglas Adams panels both of which were fantastic also and we learn there is a connection between David Whitaker and Douglas Adams which you will hear about on the episode 105 time lash episode of Doctor Who Lynn. I see Jason is curious now but I'm going to make him wait for the answer until after this recording is over so that was the, is that the Kevin John Davies panel? Yes. What and is, then also there was another group panel uh, today as well, with uh, uh, moderated by Stacy Smith. Uh, Stacy's a good friend of both of these podcasts. She's been on both. And uh, it was also uh, Simon. And, jeez, I'm going to forget who else was on it. You can look it up in the program, or they can look it up in the program and mm-hmm. drop it in after the fact in <laughs> post-production, because my brain has just gone blank, and I was sitting there. I know uh, James Goss, obviously, uh, and, and the gentleman from Cutaway Comics, Gary uh, Cavanaugh, who was featured earlier in this recording, and uh, Jason is not even 50 yet, so he doesn't have my excuse for the lack of memory. I have, I have recovered nicely, though. I came up with everybody. You did. Any other panels that particularly stand out? I enjoyed seeing uh, uh, Derek Jacoby and uh, and some of the some of the actors and yeah. Rachel Talley is always a an entertaining and informative watch as well. But yeah, it's it's been a good con. It always is. This year was a little bit harder for me scheduling wise. They've had a lot of stuff that I wanted to see opposite each other. But yes, which Derek Jacoby did you see? Was it the David Bickerstaff interview or the Jason A. Gallery? Bickerstaff. Yeah. So yeah, Bickerstaff, David Bickerstaff, hands. Derek Jacobi, a list of six master quotes from different <laughs> masters. And I assume these were cold readings. I'm going to assume this was not rehearsed. And Derek Jacobi just nails the readings perfectly. Mm-hmm. He's a pro. That's why they uh, call him Sir Derek Jacobi and they call me nothing. They so call I, me maybe. Or Emperor. <laughs> yes. I read his autobiography a couple of weeks ago before it came out, so some of the stories I was familiar with from that, but then hearing him relay them instead of reading them was, uh, was, was quite special as well. And I should point out that an Anthony Ainley Master cosplayer just walked by us, even though it's 10 p.m. on a Saturday night and most of the cosplayers have gone home. Anthony Ainley is still strutting the hallways after hours. <laughs> I got a fray without an Ainley. Scarcely the best thinking of. <laughs> and this is the same DJ Jason Davis who did a dead-on accurate impression of Richard Herndall eating pineapple in my Doctor Who Lit Two Doctors episode, but because it was not videotaped, nobody will ever know what a great job he did. It was uncannily accurate. I can imagine young Jason standing in front of the mirror at home practicing his uh, <laughs> pineapple eating delivery. And there goes Anthony Ainley in the other direction. All right, Jason Davis, we look forward to seeing you at events tomorrow. Did you happen to catch any of my panels? 
I did not. And I was unannounced on the Targets panel, but I ended up being on the panel and moderating the panel on very short notice. Did you do a good job? Everyone tells me that I did, but I think I was terrible, having not read the books in question because they haven't been released in the States yet. I had to ham and egg it a little bit. You did do a really good job, I'll say. I'll say. Excellent. Even if Mark does say so himself. All right, now, Jason, we're going to record with you now for Doctor Who Lit, but thank you very much for joining us on this episode. No, not the Doctor Who Lit! (laughs) Windmill 347 to Trap 1. And I'm once again in the Gallifrey dealer's room with my good friend Dale Santos. Dale, you always have an amazing display out for sale. What are some of the highlights of your collection this year? Let's see. What would have been the highlights this year, Jason, at Gallifrey 1? The William Hartnell cast card, also known as a fan card, uh, the, the original 1963 version, which is just a face shot of William Hartnell. That would it, it came from that Tribe of Gum episode when they're running from the cavemen. That was one of the highlights. It's still available. And the other item that has long gone now is the uh, Patrick Troughton uh, fan card from that 1967, as I recall. One other item I was able to purchase today that was kind of interesting and it's close to my heart would be my Target First Edition 10th Planet signed by Cyber Dad himself, Jerry Davis. Wow. That's um, that's probably the highlights this year, Jason. I didn't bring any of the posters this year, but from a book perspective, I think that was... that. That and those autographs would be it, yeah. An autograph First Edition 10th Planet by Jerry Davis is incredible. How did you come by that? Oh, sorry. Um, one of the other dealers in the room had it, and I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And the interesting thing is, if you get a later, if you get a later printing of this, what you'll see is they cut a lot of the bottom off. The, the printings are really bad on a, a lot of these. If you get away from a first edition on some of these Target books, you just don't appreciate the artwork that was put on them. I, I can't visually really show you, but if we look. You can see how you can see all of the the Cybermen on the first edition. There's white border on the sides and the top, but That's not on right. the bottom. So but the first edition had that, and later editions don't. No, and what happens is something's lost in translation because the bottom where it says the first Cyberman adventure, what, what it, that'll be cut off. You'll literally be almost under the neck of the Cyberman on the left. That's in phenomenal condition, though. Oh, it's a lovely, it's beautiful. Excuse me. It's a lovely addition. Just, I mean, in all candidness, I put it up there more to show it off than to really sell it because I didn't really want to sell it. And, of course, it has that lovely back artwork on it, too, that the early first editions had. Which later went away. But apart from a small crease on the bottom cover and a little bit of fading from the white, it looks like it's almost brand new. Yeah, I mean, with something this early, I mean, I don't think you could do much better in this day and age with something. What what is this going on? What was this one? 70? Was this 70? I used to know that. 75, I think. 1976. So we're talking, what, almost, what, 48 years old now? And that is almost a copy not even to, I'd be terrified to read that. No, this would be just one that I put in with the collection of non-readers. And you also had, I believe, a 
poster of the Turkish cover of one of the early novelizations? I did. What I actually had was a Turkish poster from the Dalek Invasion of Earth movie starring Peter Cushing. Oh, wow. That a, a friend purchased. A friend from Florida picked that up earlier. This year I didn't bring any type of backing board, so it was a folded example, and I didn't have anywhere to really put it out. But I had a few people that come in that love posters, so I was able to pass it on to somebody who's going to find a good home for it and he's going to get it professionally framed. Dale, I'm always envious of the scope of your collection and also the amazing goodies that you're able to find that you don't find at too many other tables here. Well, that's very kind of you to say and it's always a pleasure to catch up from catch up with you, Jason. Dale, thanks again for being on the show and I will definitely see you here next year. Cheers, my friend. We'll be here. Greyhound Trap 1. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? I'm delighted to be joined now by Nathan from Pixel Who. Welcome to Strat One. Well, pleased to be here. So, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about your work with Pixel Who, how you got started. Oh, sure. Well, we do original 8-bit uh, artwork, mostly based on Doctor Who, but we've branched out into other fandoms that we enjoy. Uh, we build everything literally square by square, like old-school video game art from the, that we all grew up with from the 80s. And, uh, yeah, we've been doing it since about uh, 2010. We're now uh, canon to the Doctor Who Extended Universe through the uh, BBC video game uh, Doctor Who Legacy. Fantastic. So how did that come about? Then they, they found your work online? Or? Yes. In fact, they were referred to uh, uh, us by an, another friend of ours, a mutual friend. The game developers contacted us and they said, hey, would you like to work with us? And we were like, yes, absolutely we would. At first we were like, oh, the BBC are contacting us. Are they going to send us a and d yeah. No? No, they didn't. Uh, and they were lovely to work with. That's fantastic. That's great. I, I love the art. It's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, so have you started on designs and things for the next era yet? Are you kind of waiting for the next series? Well, let's see. We, we're kind of working parallel with uh, both Classic Who and New Who. So uh, we've completed artwork for the third Doctor, nearly completed for the seventh, and then we'll probably hop forward and do uh, Capaldi, I think, is going to be our next one up. Brilliant. And, uh, and where can our listeners find your work online? Uh, we're at uh, pixelwho.com. Uh, that's P-I-X-E-L-W-H-O. And, yeah, we, we look forward to, to seeing you. Great. Well, I definitely recommend it, and um, I urge everyone to check that out. Yeah. So how's your galley experience uh, this year so far? You know, it's always wonderful coming here. It's like returning to your home planet where everyone speaks <laughs> your language, you know? Uh, we, we always uh, uh, have you know, people we see regularly, and then we always meet new people that we keep in touch with from then on. That's great. Yeah, I was saying, this is my first one. Met, met loads of people, definitely keep in touch with. Yeah. So how many have you been to? I think what? this is about our seventh or eighth. Seventh. Yeah. Eighth. Fantastic. That's great. And um, obviously you're, you're here with um, with your concession in the dealer's mm-hmm. room. Have you had much chance to see any of the panels or anything like that? Uh, I, I was on a panel and I moderated a panel, but uh, often I'm, I'm at the booth most of the show. Yeah, yeah so your panel yeah. was about a uh, so year in review of science fiction shows mm-hmm. um, from 2023, which... Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to that one. It was uh, really enjoyed. I got some. That great, was a lot of fun. Great recommendations because there was a lot of shows in there that I hadn't seen. Um, what was uh, what was your favorite show from 2023? Uh, it's one that actually very few people in there had watched, but it, it's on HBO. It's called Scavengers Reign. It's a uh, it's a terrible title for a really really good program. It's it's animated. It has a really unique style. It kind of reminds me of a Mobius comic book. Um, and it's it's just intriguing and disturbing and beautiful in, in equal parts. I mean, to check that out. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure if it's available in the UK, but if it is, I'll, I'll find it. But yeah, I think it was a really interesting panel because, as you were saying, everything's so fragmented with the streaming services. Yeah. 
I had not heard of a lot of those mm-hmm. those shows, but they all sound absolutely amazing. Um, so yeah, it's it's I guess until things settle down again, it, it will that kind of word of mouth and panels like that are really important to 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 find shows and, and to spread the word about them. I think eventually a lot of these individual streaming services will be consolidated, but we're we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Uh, well, I think the main thing you might take away from that panel was uh, I need to get Apple TV because uh, yeah, I do too. <laughs> it felt like about half the shows that are recommended are on Apple, and it's about the only one I don't have. So it's kind of encouraging that they're you know leaning hard into sci-fi programming. Yeah, that's it. I think somebody on the panel said that people left uh, one of the one of the other channels to go there yes I think they did mention that Uh, I think they migrated from a different service I I want to say HBO but I'm not entirely sure so hopefully it bodes well for Doctor Who internationally. It's on Disney Plus. I guess that's one of the bigger, the bigger streaming services. It it is. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a late, late one to the party, but it seems to have gained a lot of popularity, and it has a different demographic than a lot of the others. It has a large age range. Yeah, so, and I suppose having Marvel and Star Wars, you've yeah. got genre fans who are already in there, and you've got people who are used to and and appreciate uh, an extended universe mm-hmm. and that kind of loyal viewing that, that that pays off you know if, if you do start getting Doctor Who spin-offs and things it will act a bit like the MCU like that yeah. as well it? and it, so. I think it's a good fit for Doctor Who too because it, it's unusual in that it also has a very wide uh, you know age range of its viewers from kids all the way up to you know the elderly so yeah. uh, not you can't say that about a lot of sci-fi shows no that's it yeah it's uh, yeah it appeals to everybody yeah mm-hmm. that's great well thank you very much I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us it's a pleasure uh, enjoy the rest of the convention oh you too Greyhound trap one over Also joining us at Gallifrey One this year is a friend of the podcast and frequent contributor, Jan Fennick. Jan, welcome back. Thank you, Jason. Let's talk Good about here. Let's talk about the masquerade this year. How did it go, and what is your role in it? I am uh, the department head of the masquerade, and it went swimmingly well. Uh, we had about thirty-five or thirty-six entries, which is more than we had last year uh, because we switched the format. We've gone from actual judging competition to now just a fashion show, so it's a lot less pressure. It's a lot easier to handle, a lot less time because the judges are not deliberating for an hour or two, which yes. sometimes can get very sticky if they're if they're getting very technical, which is great when people win, but not so great for people who run the convention and need the space. So, um, And we had like pretty good capacity. Um, there was some minor hitch with the hotel um, and the two uh, event rooms that I'm still not sure about, something to do with the plumbing, so we oh, wow. we actually went like on like half an hour late, and we did not know why we turned up the next day. And I guess it was the dealer's room and also the main ballroom. So there was problems with tech, there was problems with that, but once we went on, it was great. Went very well. How many contestants or contributors did you have? Um, we had 35 or 36 entries, but a number of those were either two or more people. So um, we probably had more than that. And I think we had one or two people that signed up and then even came to check in and then disappeared, so we never got them. How long have you been involved in the masquerade here? Oh, gosh. It's been over a decade because um, my late friend Jennifer Adams-Kelly used to run the main thing, and I was her assistant for all those years. Um, Jen didn't make it to Galley uh, 2019, um, and it was run by Kevin Roach and Andrew Tremblay for two years. Um, so, And then we, had lock, uh, then we had COVID in the middle of all that. Um, so I took it up once that we came back from lockdown. So that was 2022. This is your third year running it. Right. As the actual department head is compared to just assistant. Because right. I assisted Andy and, and Kevin as well. 
What's the appeal of cosplay for you? Appeal for me is just I've always liked dress up. I've always liked being theatrical. I like studying costumes historical costumes, so it's just a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of people kind of liken, I mean, it's interesting because these days cosplay and drag have become very intertwined. So there are actually drag artists who cosplay and cosplayers who drag this and that. So a lot of it has to do with empowerment. It's sort of like taking on a new persona, being somebody you know that you're interested in as a character, whether it's anime, whether it's you know Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who something original and being someone different and it can be very empowering because especially for people who are sort of socially awkward, um, shy, sometimes, you know, in the same thing with drag, you sort of you put on a wig, you put on makeup, you put on new clothes and suddenly you're somebody else and you're hiding behind a mask but you're not and you get to have a new persona to come out um, and deal with people. So it, it's just a lot of fun. And you are 13 today. What other cosplays do you like to bring here? Um, I have one that's a 13 uh, Sylvie from Loki uh, hybrid sort of mashup that is, I keep building on and making it a little better every time, and that's a lot of fun. Um, I do a lot of Don Nobles because we're a, Catherine and I are of an age and not on similar build, and I'm unnaturally redhead. Yes. <laughs> but I, I do have wigs for Donna, too, and I like her clothes because they're because she's a more mature character, it works for me. You know? And I think I recall you were in Donna's sweater the other day. Yeah, I was in the 60th anniversary costume on Saturday, and I was planning on doing the Fires of Pompeii dress this morning um, so I could take a picture with Sir Derek Jacobi because it was kind of like an, an in-joke for me in terms of my first love by Claudius. But um, things got a little crazy, and I would have had to then do two more costume changes for other photo shoots, and I said, you know what? I just don't have the energy. I'm being 13 all day today. Um, I do, especially when my friend Jennifer was around, because she would dress as 11. I did Clara a lot. Um, I One day I will do River Song, but I haven't gotten there yet, because um, her screen-accurate clothing is extremely expensive and relatively small, because even though Alex is two weeks younger than I am, she's absolutely... She's built a lot differently. Um, and it's just kind of fun. Um, and sometimes we do hybrids. Like, I had a photo with Annette Badland yesterday, and I wasn't the only one. All the Ted Lasso gear, shirts, scarves, yes. coats came out for everybody since she's the pub publican on Ted Lasso. So we all had, like, kind of a good laugh with that, too. I, I missed it, but there was a group shot today where, like, everybody went and converged upon her. So. She gave a prominent Ted Lasso shout Ted Lasso shout out when she was on stage during closing ceremonies. I noticed that. Yeah, and she really felt the Ted Lovers and Ted Ribbons being passed around and all that sort of stuff too. One of the great things about Galley is there are so many guests here in five simultaneous program tracks, so there's so much to see, more than one person can take in. I was not aware that she was here until the closing ceremony. So. Ah, see, I knew she was coming, I think, early on, and I've been a fan of her work going back to, I want to say, from 1979, 1980, when she was in the Monty Python-adjacent movie uh, Jabberwocky, where she played Michael Palin's love interest, Griselda Fishfin. And I've seen <laughs> her in a million other things, a million small roles, and then she was on Doctor Who. All right, well, Jan, thanks so much, and we'll see you on the trap one very soon. Thank you, Jason. So I'm here now with US Jason, Nicole and Bill. This is the final evening of the final day of, of Galley for this year. We've had the closing ceremony and the uh, so highlights of 2023 reel. Um, but what each of your highlights from, from this year? I enjoyed seeing Derek Jacoby and listening. I could have listened to him tell his stories 
all day. He could have been a special panel, but... But Nicole, when you went to Sir Derek Jacobi, the greatest actor of his generation, did you go to him and say, I loved you and I, Claudius? No. Did you say, I loved you in Doctor Who Utopia? No, despite being at a Doctor Who convention. So what do you say, Nicole, to Sir Derek Jacobi, what you love him and idolize him for? When I met Sir Derek Jacobi, the very first words out of my mouth were, I love you in dead again. And how did Sir Derek respond? He, he did say, thank you. He looked a little like, oh, dead again. And then I explained that I loved it as an 11-year-old. And then he said, you've made me feel very old. <laughs> to which I said, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I just love that movie. And then he was like, no, no, it's fine. And then I think I walked away. But that was my big crowning moment. But I could have listened to him in his panel. Like, he had so many stories. He seemed lovely. And I did enjoy the Doctor Who connection as well. He told no dead again stories. No. So I enjoyed hearing about his other things as well. I think his panel was excellent as well. Yeah. And it was good wide ranging one, so it didn't just focus on, well, obviously his Doctor Who work is, it's not contained just to Utopia. It's got some big finished stories, but they're not as widely known maybe as, as other stuff. So it was great that they covered covered the full gamut of his, uh, of his career yes. as well, so. Yes. And he did seem just like a lovely human being. Yeah, the closing ceremony as well, he came on on his own, didn't he? All the other guests came mm -hmm. out in um, in a group, or two groups. But I guess because he's a headliner, is that the way that works? He came out on his own and it was really nice, wasn't he? About, you know, he didn't know what to expect, but everyone had been really nice to him. And, uh, so, so, yeah, it seemed genuinely like he'd, he'd had a good time. Yep. Any other highlights? Well, I mean, other than Derek Jacoby, of course. Um, companions I hadn't seen before would be uh, Billy Piper, Alice Kingston, um, and obviously also the related Camille Cowdery. And, so that was, that was nice definitely seeing them for the first time. Did Billy Piper, Bill, say to you, Bill, you're my twin, you're my namesake? Unfortunately, she did not. I didn't have that close of a conversation with her, but that would have been fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> we, we met her last night at the drinks reception. Uh, she was the first guest over to our table, yes. and yeah, couldn't have been nicer. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a really lovely yeah, experience. And the young girls at our table who became fans of the new series first were just expressing to her how much it meant to them discovering Doctor Who on lockdown and becoming big Billy Piper fans. And she was visibly moved by their stories. Yeah, that was lovely. And we also met Camille Kajuri. Uh, on that as well, Ray Holman, who's the costume designer for the Whitaker era, he was really interesting. I think the most, uh, and the biggest thing I learned from talking to him was about the the aliens from Spyfall. Were they Kasavin, was it? Yeah, I asked him, I prompted the question, I asked, what was the hardest costume that you had to design from a brief? I just assumed the Kasavin were CGI glowing figures, but it turns out they were actual artists on set on location in the South African desert wearing very elaborate costumes. Yeah, so the, the, the whole way they glowed was a practical effect. It was LEDs sewn into sort of three layers of costume. I would never have known that because we didn't have Doctor Who Confidential during that, that era or anything. So so that was that was a really interesting insight as well. But Sean Dingwall, was, uh, he was great as well. Yes. Really nice guy. Brian Croucher from Blake 7 was one of the guests at our table. Steve Cole, John Dorney, 
Lisa McMullen from the books Big Finish and Big Finish. All absolutely wonderful, delightful people. We're very into it. Love their public. Yeah. And really intelligent answers to questions about the books and Big Finish audios. And just, I learned a lot listening to them. I had been on panels with John and Lisa earlier in the weekend. Steve, I had not yet met. I think for me, the highlight today, the Sunday, I had two add-on events, script readings. And they do this in Galley every year with select guests. I did this with Mandip Gill a couple of years ago, and then I was in the Jody Whittaker group last year. So you're given a Doctor Who script the actor was in, signed by the actor, and then moderated by somebody from Showmaster's events. You act out scenes from that script opposite the, the guest. So today I did script reads with Derek Jacoby and Matthew Waterhouse. So for Derek Jacoby, the room was packed, and there were a lot of people in the audience, and there were a lot of younger women who were big fans of Derek Jacoby. So I didn't get called on, but I was okay with that. So let, let the people who truly love Derek Jacoby go on stage and read the lines with him, and he was very, very good. Um, then later on in the day, I did the Matthew Waterhouse event, which was not quite as jam-packed as the Derek Jacoby event, Derek being more of a headliner. But with Matthew, we got the script from one of my all-time favorite Doctor Who series. In fact, number one on my top six list, Legopolis. We got a printout of the draft Christopher H. Bidmead script for Legopolis Part 2. Now, when that went through rehearsal, it came out with tighter dialogue and less dialogue as filtered through Tom Baker and the performers. And the dialogue that I have memorized in my head is not the dialogue that was on the pages that we were given. But this is all stuff that appears in the novelization, because the novelization was based on these exact scripts. So there were about 25 people in the room. And I didn't get called on first because there was a teenager in an Adric costume, so obviously that's going to get called on first. But for the third scene we did, it was a scene in the Pharaoh's Project control room. So we needed an actor to play the Adric and the fourth doctor and Tegan and the Monitor and the Monitor I've said this on Doctor Who the Monitor is one of my favorite guest characters in Doctor Who John Fraser was a Hollywood star earlier and he's an older performer by the time Legopolis rolls around his autobiography by the way is hilarious and it doesn't mention Doctor Who at all those three weeks out of his life I guess didn't merit his autobiography but I played the Monitor and having memorized the cadence of every line of dialogue that John Fraser delivers in that play, I was able to do what I think is a very good monitor. And when it came time to say, it is a perfectly logical copy, I made direct icon with Matthew Waterhouse, and he was not expecting that. So much so that at the end of the night, during the closing ceremonies, when Matthew Waterhouse on stage is cavelling about how well the script read went, he said, we had a better fourth doctor, we had a better Adric, we had a better Tegan, and we had a better monitor. So that was me getting shouted out to by Matthew Waterhouse on the main stage, so my life is now complete. The funniest part of that, if you are Janet Fielding listening to Trap One, please now hit the fast-forward 30 seconds button. <laughs> For the very final scene, the cliffhanger scene, the last five pages of the draft script, Matthew Waterhouse decides to play Tegan instead of Adric or the fourth doctor. This was not a flattering portrayal of Janet Fielding. Maybe it was flattering in a sarcastic way, but it was loud and screechy, and it had the audience in stitches, and it was the highlight of the whole half hour. <laughs> Welcome back to Trap One, Janet. Hope you're enjoying the rest of the show. 
So that was the big things that I did today, apart from interviews for this podcast of Dr. Who Lit, was the script reads with Derek Jacobi and Matthew Waterhouse. And it's a great opportunity that you get here at Galley. They do two or three of these every year. Then there were, I think Billy Piper did one as well, which I didn't sign up for. And Lala Ward was supposed to do one before she unfortunately had to cancel her appearance at the convention. But I also did a coffee clatch. That's where you get 10 guests who win a lottery sitting in a room with one or two headline guests. So I was able to sit in a room with James Goss and Mark Mars talking about their novelizations of The Giggle and Wild Blue Yonder, respectively, both coming up on Trap One episodes in the near future, as well as talking about their other way. James Goss is a very, very, very funny human being, by the way. Mm-hmm. And I've mentioned this earlier in the show, but we're recording this two days after that segment, so I forgot that I said it the first time. <laughs> But the coffee clutches are also a great experience. The biggest one was Rachel Talala, who was here. I didn't get to see her at all, unfortunately. But that was, again, it was a lottery, so I did not win the Rachel Talala coffee clutch lottery. But getting James Goss and Mark Morris is equal to that. So one of the great things about the Galilee experience is you get different opportunities to get up close and personal with the guests, whether it's a photo op or the autograph line, or a script reading, or a coffee clutch, or just a random encounter at the bar. Kevin McNally, if you're listening, we're sorry that you were not allowed to stay for the entire convention, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so we, we also, as part of the closing ceremony, got to see the the specially recorded clip from Shooter Gatwa again. Um, I think I took in this time which I don't know if this has been announced anywhere else, um, is that he's recorded his first scenes in a quarry. He which was very is, excited for that. Yeah, so that's um, that's a bit of a... Uh, and it was freezing. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it's a, it's a It's a proper doctor... Dr. Rite of Passage. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So that was, uh, that was great. I had inadvertently said, I think yesterday when you and I were recording our daily wrap-up, that that was shot from what I thought was the old TARDIS set. I said it was the new TARDIS set, yeah. but it was from a very low angle, so it, was, it wasn't the console level, it was the floor level. Yeah. So yeah, it was from the new console room, and it was literally from the middle of filming. And there were posters that Disney Plus gave out at the mm-hmm. event, so we all have them now. Yeah, that's fantastic. And uh, yeah, just generally, as I say, my first galley, it's, it's been amazing. The, the energy and the enthusiasm, I think, is the biggest difference from, from the UK ones. Um, the you know every guest gets like just a rapturous welcome, and then is cheering and whooping and hollering like all the way through the panels. If some if uh, if a guest mentions a story that people love, or another actor or character or anything, it's it's much more kind of demonstrative like that. And uh, I think that's um, that's a big difference. And just yeah, the energy from that is incredible. So Mark. Are you coming back to Galilee again, or were you scared off for all time by the uh, crowd size and the behaviors here? No, no, I definitely, definitely want to come back. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been incredible. Well, thank you very much for listening to this field report. We'll have um, I think another field report coming up fairly soon from the BFI screening of the new animated Celestial Toymaker, so, so look out for that one. Um, and in the meantime, you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Good night now. Good night. Goodbye.